Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. 22-year-old Freddie Brookins turned on the faucet. He undressed, ready to step into his morning shower on July 23, 1999. Suddenly, his girlfriend Terry yelled, There are people in the yard! Freddie dashed to the bathroom window to see what was going on, grabbing a nearby sheet to cover himself as he crossed the room. Someone was pounding on the door. Freddie, wrapped in just the sheet, cracked it open. There, 56-year-old Sheriff Larry Stewart stood on his porch. Freddie knew Stewart from years of watching him sing at church and was confused why the sheriff was standing outside his house first thing in the morning. But then he noticed five or six other men, all wearing ski masks, pointing guns at his front door. Confusion turned to fear. Stewart told Freddie they had a warrant for his arrest, and he passed a piece of paper through the space in the door. Freddie took the note and read the words, delivery of a controlled substance. Shocked, the young man said the first thing that popped into his head, Stewart had the wrong house. But as he started to close the door, Stewart threatened, if you close the door, we'll have to shoot. Freddie instead opened the door and took a step out onto his porch. He wanted Stewart to know he was going to cooperate. An officer reached over and pulled the sheet off of him. Standing completely naked outside, Freddie was cuffed. After some pleading, Stewart agreed to let him put clothes on before they took him away. As his girlfriend Terry stood frozen in the living room, all she could think was how glad she was her daughter wasn't home that morning. Freddie hastily pulled on his pants and insisted to Stewart that he had never sold drugs in his life. One of the masked men replied, What do you mean you've never sold drugs? And then he pulled off his ski mask, revealing his face. He snarled, Recognize me? But he didn't. Freddy had never seen the man before in his life. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're examining the mass arrests of 46 drug dealers in the small town of Tulia, Texas. We'll look at the background of the star narcotics agent at the root of the roundup and the evidence against the defendants. Next week, we'll follow the final legal battles and the national backlash that asked, has the war on drugs finally gone too far? In the 1980s and 1990s, rural Swisher County, Texas, shared one thing with big cities across America, the rising crack epidemic. The county was among the thousands of municipalities that applied for grant money from the federal government to fight the war on drugs. Swisher County's sheriff, 56-year-old Larry Stewart, saw Tulia, the most densely populated town in the county, as the source of the problem. Thanks to the grant money, in early 1998, he finally had the funds needed to employ a new officer. Soon, word got out that Swisher County was looking to hire an undercover narcotics agent. And 39-year-old Cochrane County officer Tom Coleman answered the call. Though he had no undercover experience, Coleman insisted to Sheriff Stewart and the narcotics task force that he was the man for the job. His late father, Joe Coleman, had been a member of the Texas Rangers, an elite division of the state police. Being a cop was in his blood. Once he got the job, Tom Coleman transformed himself into T.J. Dawson, a construction worker from Pecos, Texas. He pulled his hair back into a low ponytail and wore a leather jacket when he showed up at the weekly Tulia cattle auction. This was where, every Monday, many of Tulia's unemployed young men found a day of honest work. It was also rumored some of those men were connected to the drug trade. TJ went to the sales and chatted up the day laborers looking for leads. TJ quickly made friends, though a few rumors spread early on that the stranger who came out of nowhere was actually a narc. But others dismissed the idea. A couple of people even claimed they sat in TJ's truck and smoked crack with him. No police officer would go that far for a bust, not even while undercover. TJ wasn't a cop. He was a user, just like them. Tom Coleman spent 18 months as T.J. Dawson. Every couple of days, he drove up to Amarillo and checked a baggie of powdered cocaine into evidence that he'd purchased in Tulia. The bag was almost always an eighth of an ounce, known on the street as an eight ball. Coleman typed up a detailed report describing the time, location, and description of each seller. He had to rely on his memory to file these statements. It was too dangerous to wear a wire in case someone decided to search him. He also couldn't be seen with a notebook listing buys. If he had information he was afraid he'd forget, Coleman rolled up the hem of his blue jeans and wrote it on his leg. During the year and a half sting, Coleman had filed over 100 reported drug buys, most ranging in value between $100 and $200. In July 1999, 
a grand jury handed down 46 arrest warrants based on Coleman's reports. At dawn on July 23, 1999, Sheriff Stewart, his deputies, state police, and the seven-man police force of Tulia, Texas, loaded into their cars and headed towards the flats, the predominantly black neighborhood west of the railroad tracks. They hoped to catch their suspects by surprise, showing up just as the sun was rising. And that's precisely what they did. While the completely nude Freddie Brookins was allowed to put clothes on before being taken to the station, the other people arrested were not given the courtesy. News cameras rolled as police led the suspects, one at a time, into the brick jailhouse in their pajamas or with their hair standing on end as if they'd just been pulled from bed. Some were wearing only their boxer shorts. By 10.30 in the morning, the 20 by 30 cell at the Tulia jailhouse was hot and crowded. 20 men of the 46 arrested shared the cramped space, and they were all confused. Most of them had never sold drugs in their lives. It must be a big mistake, but how did it happen? Around noon, they got their answer. Sheriff Stewart and Agent Tom Coleman walked by the cell. Coleman went right up to the bars and jeered, Bet you didn't expect to see me here. The men were silent. Very few recognized him. Then one man said, That's TJ. Some of those who'd never met Coleman recognized the name. TJ was the white guy who sometimes drove around town and hung around the cattle auctions, but they were still confused. The men locked up never sold cocaine to him or to anyone else. Some of the men and women arrested that day were able to post bail, but several couldn't afford it. They had to stay locked up while they waited for their trials. As the family and friends of those arrested tried to figure out what was going on, many other residents of Tulia watched the arrests on the evening news and celebrated. It was about time the drug problem was dealt with. The next day, the Tulia Sentinel echoed this sentiment when it ran the biting headline, Tulia's streets cleared of garbage. When the names and addresses of the arrested were published in the local paper, all of the homes were in a predominantly black neighborhood known as the Flats. Of the 46 alleged dealers arrested, nearly 40 were black, three were Latinx. The three white suspects were all in interracial relationships and had biracial children. At the time, the black population of Tulia totaled approximately 350 people. More than 10% of the black community was locked up in a single day. But for a large number of citizens, this only confirmed what they always suspected. The drugs were coming from the flats. They were filled with gratitude for what Agent Tom Coleman had done for their city. And it wasn't just the people of Tulia who recognized the so-called good Coleman did. A month after the arrests, Coleman accepted an award for Outstanding Lawman of the Year from Texas Attorney General John Cornyn. 
Coleman was getting the recognition he had worked so hard for. Meanwhile, the Tulia defendants prepared for trial, knowing the entire town was against them. And for one defendant in particular, 58-year-old Joe Moore, the stakes were higher. He had two previous felony convictions. A third meant he'd face a much more severe prison sentence. It would mean he'd likely die in prison. Joe knew he needed a good lawyer, but like most of the Tulia defendants, he couldn't afford to hire one. Swisher County didn't have a public defender's office. Instead, the judge simply appointed local attorneys to the cases, meaning they had to fit in their trial prep in between their more lucrative full-time work. Craig Eukel was appointed as Joe's attorney. He met with Joe in jail in August 1999, about a month after the arrest. It was the first time Joe heard the accusations against him in detail. Tom Coleman claimed Joe sold him a gram of crack in August 1998 and an eighth of an ounce of powdered cocaine in October of 1998. Joe was outraged. He never sold Coleman any drugs. For one thing, Joe wasn't a drug dealer. And for the other, he had Coleman pegged as a narc from day one. The only time Coleman showed up at his house, he told him to get off his property. But that's not the story Coleman was telling. And without proof Joe didn't sell the drugs, the case would ultimately come down to who the jury believed. Would they trust career law enforcement agent Tom Coleman or convicted felon Joe Moore? Yukel then pushed his client to ask the prosecutor for a plea deal. If he went to trial and lost, Yukel warned, District Attorney Terry McEachern was going to push for the maximum, 99 years, effectively a life sentence. But Joe knew he didn't sell drugs to Coleman, and he was confident the court would see that. He wasn't going to plead guilty to something that he didn't do. Yukel didn't think Joe had much of a case, but he said he would see what he could do. Months went by without word. Joe kept calling Yukel from the jail. He was going stir-crazy, unable to do anything to help his case and not even knowing when the trial was. But when Yukel never called back and failed to visit him after their initial meeting, Joe wrote to the presiding judge, Ed Self, to request a new attorney. But Self, too, ignored him. Joe didn't hear from Yukel until nearly four months later. When he finally called on December 9, 1999, it was to inform Joe that the trial was starting in six days. Joe, shocked, asked Yukel what he'd found that they could use in court. Yukel had nothing. Aside from filing the standard pretrial motions, he had barely done any work on the case at all. Perhaps feeling badly after his call with Joe, Yukel finally filed a pretrial motion to suppress Coleman's identification of Joe as the seller. The description in the report was not detailed enough to be sure it was Joe, and Yukel hoped to keep the jury from hearing it. 
On December 13, 1999, Judge Self agreed to hear the matter, and Coleman took the stand to defend his work. During the hearing, Yukel pulled out Coleman's report on Joe Moore. Though it was three pages long, only one paragraph gave any details of the alleged drug buy. In his description of the seller, Coleman simply noted he was a black man. He wrote nothing about Joe's appearance otherwise. Yukel asked Coleman if he had any additional notes he hadn't turned over to the investigation. Coleman shifted in his chair. He hesitated and said that he did, but they couldn't be turned over. He had written them on his leg at the time. He joked he couldn't produce them in court since he had taken a bath since then. With Coleman on the stand, Yukel used the chance to ask him about his record as a police officer. Since the trial was coming down to credibility, he started with a routine question. Had Coleman ever been the subject of an investigation? Yukel expected to hear an immediate no, but Coleman answered yes. Coming up, we'll hear more about Coleman's checkered law enforcement past. Now, back to the story. In December of 1999, Agent Tom Coleman was faced with defending his drug bust investigation in court for the first time. But it wouldn't be the last. His 18-month undercover operation in Tulia, Texas, during 1998 and 1999, had netted 46 arrests. And there were, potentially, dozens of trials to come. The first defendant in court was 58-year-old Joe Moore. At a pre-trial hearing, his attorney, Craig Eukel, asked Coleman if he had ever been the subject of an investigation, a fairly routine question, but Coleman gave a less-than-routine answer. He had. He explained that in May of 1998, the same year he began his post in Tulia, he was accused of theft at his previous job as a deputy in Cochrane County, Texas. But Coleman quickly told the court that the investigation was closed within a week because the allegations were unfounded. Even though the charges were dropped, this information was still critical to the case. Coleman's record should have been handed over to the defense considering the investigation occurred while he was working undercover in Tulia. But if this legal oversight occurred to Yukel, he didn't show it. Instead, he dropped the line of questioning entirely. In the end, it didn't make a dent in Coleman's credibility. When the hearing concluded, Judge Self ruled that Coleman's identification of Joe Moore would be admissible at trial. Joe was crushed. Joe's official trial both began and ended on December 15, 1999, just two days after his pretrial hearing. District Attorney McEachern's opening statement painted Joe Moore as one of the drug kingpins of Tulia. As Joe sat at the council table, listening to the outrageous description, he couldn't hide his astonishment. He stifled the urge to laugh out loud. 
Joe was a hog farmer who drove a 14-year-old Oldsmobile. He didn't know how drug lords lived, but he was pretty sure it was better than that. But his attorney didn't point this out. He also didn't bring up the investigation against Tom Coleman that he'd uncovered during the pretrial hearing, and he didn't call any witnesses on Joe's behalf. Including the one-hour lunch break, Joe Moore's trial lasted for four hours. It took the jury only 25 minutes to find him guilty. By dinner time, the sentence was handed down. 90 years in prison. Word of Joe being sent away for decades sent shockwaves through the flats. Many of the other suspects had young children, and in some cases, both parents had been arrested. Panic instantly set in as they imagined a life locked away from their kids. But Paul Holloway, an attorney for four of the defendants, wasn't worried. Not yet, at least. He hadn't paid much attention to Joe's trial, but he assumed the state had more against Joe than they had on his clients. Two of his clients, Yolanda Smith and Joseph Marshall, had previous drug arrests, but they were for crack, not powdered cocaine. The other two, Vicky Fry and Daniel Olivares, had never been arrested for anything before. Vicky was the only one who was able to pay her bail, and that was thanks to a loan from a sympathetic neighbor. 41-year-old Holloway was an experienced defense attorney, and he couldn't count how many people he'd defended against charges from undercover operations. But never in his career had he seen such short police reports with no corroborating evidence. Most drug buys had something to back up the agent's story, whether it was the recording from a wire or a covert videotape of the exchange. At the very least, there was another agent to witness the deal, but Coleman didn't have any of that. Wanting to find out what the state had on Joe Moore, Holloway picked up the phone and called Joe's attorney, Craig Uckel. Holloway was shocked to learn that the state didn't have any more evidence against Joe than they had on his clients. Joe was sent away for 90 years based on Coleman's word alone. Holloway had never seen a case like this before. If that was what he was up against, Holloway knew he needed to learn as much as he could about Officer Tom Coleman. Sitting in on the next two Tulia trials, Holloway wrote down everything Coleman said on the stand. The next trial for 27-year-old Chris Jackson was a disaster from the start. Holloway could tell that his attorney, Angela French, was out of her depth. It was her first felony trial ever. Because French hadn't spoken to the other Tulia defense attorneys before the proceedings, she never learned about the theft accusations against Coleman. Her cross-examination of the state's star witness was confusing, and her line of questioning was hard to follow. But while on the stand, Coleman made an offhanded remark that caught Holloway's attention. He accused his former boss, the sheriff of Cochrane County, of being a crook. The comment was out of character for a police officer. They usually were reluctant to badmouth others they served with, yet Coleman was volunteering the information 
in court. But it didn't appear defense attorney French found the comment as interesting as Holloway did, and she dropped the topic. It was no surprise when Chris Jackson was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years for selling 3.5 grams of powdered cocaine. That's a little more than you could fit in a thimble. 19-year-old Jason Williams' trial went the same way. Again, Coleman called his former boss a crook from the stand, and everyone seemingly ignored the information. Everyone except Holloway, that is. Holloway stayed in court through the guilty verdict and sentencing. When Jason Williams was sentenced to 45 years in prison, a sadness washed over the attorney. The rest of Williams' youth would be wasted behind bars for a crime Holloway believed he did not commit. After court, Holloway went back to his office and called the Cochrane County Sheriff's Office. He wanted to know why Tom Coleman called his boss a crook. He reached Ken Burke, the sheriff of Cochrane County, when Coleman worked there. He opened by asking him for his thoughts on Coleman. Burke gave a predictable answer. He called Coleman a good cop. Holloway paused. He was going to have to break down the blue wall if he wanted to learn the truth about Coleman. So he cut straight to the chase. He informed Burke that Coleman testified under oath that Burke was a crook. Twice. That was all it took. Burke was livid. He replied that Coleman was the crook and he could prove it. Tom Coleman had been indicted for theft after he left Cochrane County. This surprised Holloway. Tom Coleman had testified that he was only investigated, and the investigation ended within a week. But that appeared to be a lie. Holloway pressed Burke for details, but the sheriff cut him off. If Holloway wanted to know more, he was going to have to come down to Cochrane County in person and talk to J.C. Adams, the Cochrane County attorney. Holloway drove his Mercedes nearly two hours to Morton, Texas. He parked in front of the small law office of J.C. Adams. Adams had the file open before Holloway even entered the room. He explained that in mid-1996, Sheriff Ken Burke started getting complaints from local businesses. Coleman had been accruing debts around town, getting credit based on his job as a sheriff's deputy. But it had gone on too long, and people started wondering if they'd ever get paid. Burke pulled Coleman aside to confront him about the debts, and Coleman apologized. He assured Burke he would pay off all his bills. A few weeks after that conversation, Coleman's girlfriend suddenly moved out of their shared home and in with her parents in another state. Coleman was devastated, and in the middle of his shift, he told the dispatcher he was leaving to find her. Coleman parked his patrol car in front of his house and drove off in his truck. He first stopped at the county pumps. This gas was to be used only for official government vehicles, but Coleman filled up his personal truck. He then left town. When Sheriff Burke went to Coleman's house that night to find out what was going on, the house was empty. 
he found a note from Coleman thanking Burke for the job, but it was time to move on. He wished the sheriff well. All told, Coleman left behind nearly $7,000 in unpaid debts, mostly owed to small business owners. Holloway put the file down. He couldn't believe what he read. It certainly looked like someone was a crook, and it wasn't Sheriff Burke. Adams explained that there wasn't much the county could do about the debts. Those were a civil matter, and the businesses had to pursue collection. But the county filed charges in May of 1998 for the theft of county gas. It was nearly two years since Coleman had left Cochrane County, but the debts remained unpaid. Because Coleman was working deep undercover in Tulia, it took until August, nearly three months after the charges were filed, to track him down. When they learned where he was, Sheriff Burke faxed the arrest warrant to Swisher County Sheriff Larry Stewart. Stewart complied with the warrant and arrested Coleman, but immediately released him on his own recognizance. Soon after, Coleman's attorney reached out to Cochrane County and offered a deal. Coleman would make restitution for all of his debts in the county, plus the cost of the gas. In exchange, the county would drop the criminal charges. Adams agreed to the deal, and within a week, the attorney showed up with a check. All charges against Tom Coleman were then dismissed. Holloway had the two-hour drive back to Tulia to process what he just learned. Sitting on his passenger seat was the full file on Coleman, which a reluctant Adams eventually let him take. What Holloway couldn't figure out was why Sheriff Stewart hired Coleman at all when Cochrane County surely would have given him a bad reference. And when Coleman was arrested halfway through the Tulia sting, why didn't Stewart fire him immediately? But just as suspicious was how Coleman paid off the debts. How did he come up with thousands of dollars so quickly? Holloway remembered an embezzlement scam he heard about from other attorneys that had taken place within the force. After buying one bag of powdered cocaine, narcotics officers would mix the drugs with baking soda. Then they repackaged the cut drugs into three or more baggies. Then they'd be reimbursed for more product than they actually bought and pocket the extra cash. It was a pretty simple con to run. The lab rarely checked the quality of the drugs. They usually only ran a test that told them if cocaine was detected at all. And a bag of mostly baking soda still tested positive for cocaine. When Holloway returned to town, he started calling the other court-appointed attorneys who were preparing for their trials to share what he learned. One of those lawyers was Tom Hamilton, a former district attorney in his late 50s. Hamilton was grateful for the information Holloway dug up. One of his clients, 42-year-old Billy Wafer, was on probation at the time of his arrest, and his revocation hearing was coming up on February 11, 2000. 
Billy had been arrested in the mid-1980s on a marijuana possession charge. He made it through nine years of his 10-year probation period without incident. During that time, he married, had two children, and found work as a forklift operator. He had put his past behind him. That is, until the Tulia Roundup. If Billy lost at his hearing, he would have to serve his full 10-year sentence in prison. Hamilton hoped to keep Billy from that fate. He filed a motion with Judge Self to test the drugs Coleman claimed he bought in Tulia. After learning about the embezzlement scheme from Holloway, he was growing increasingly suspicious. He wanted to know the percentage of cocaine in every baggie. Hamilton was confident Judge Self would be as concerned as he was about Coleman's arrest in the middle of the sting. So he also filed a motion to have that information admitted into Billy Wafer's hearing. But Hamilton was wrong. Judge Self ruled that Coleman's past was not admissible because he was never actually convicted of the theft. As for the drug testing, Self said he wouldn't rule until Hamilton found out how the test would be done and how much it would cost. Two things that would take some time. It certainly wouldn't be done before Billy's looming probation hearing. Hamilton, deflated, took one last shot with District Attorney McEachern. He told McEachern that there was clearly something wrong with these cases, but by this point, McEachern had scored four convictions and several guilty pleas. With each sentencing, McEachern felt more certain that Coleman had truly uncovered a massive drug network. The evidence spoke for itself. Coming up, the Tulia suspect's defense attorneys take what they know about Coleman's past and try to use it in court. Now, back to the story. Experienced Texas attorneys Paul Holloway and Tom Hamilton were fighting an uphill battle. The only witness against their clients was 41-year-old Tom Coleman, a cop they believed was crooked. But presiding Judge Ed Self blocked the evidence of Coleman's previous theft charges from being presented in court. Holloway assured Hamilton that he would keep digging into Coleman's past to find something they could use at trial. In the meantime, Hamilton and his son Brent had to focus on Billy Wafer's probation hearing. If he lost, he would immediately be sentenced to 10 years in prison. During the hearing, the younger Hamilton focused on discrediting Coleman on cross-examination. He warmed up by lobbing Coleman a softball question about how he was hired to the task force. When Coleman mentioned the application, Hamilton asked if there was anything on the form about the applicant's previous arrests. Coleman fumbled a minute, acting like he didn't quite understand the question. He asked if Hamilton meant how many arrests Coleman had made. Hamilton clarified. He wanted to know if Coleman had to disclose if he had ever been arrested himself. Coleman hesitated, but answered. He was sure it did. Hamilton then asked if Coleman listed any prior charges on his application. Coleman said no. 
Then, without further prompting, Coleman said that he had never been arrested or charged with anything outside of a traffic ticket. Hamilton looked at Coleman for a beat, astonished that this man just told a bald-faced lie in court, and the judge had caught it too. This was the opening he needed. But as Hamilton tried to push Coleman more, Judge Self cut him off. He'd already ruled the theft accusation inadmissible. But Self had heard the lie. It may have factored into his ultimate ruling. He decided not to revoke Billy's probation. He was free to go home to his family pending his trial. Though Billy's probation hearing could be seen as a win, the Tulia defendants, on the whole, were not making out well at trial. Juries were not only making convictions, but handing down the maximum sentences. Because of this, many of the defendants decided to make plea bargains. Between the first trial of Joe Moore in December 1999 to June 2000, 26 of the Tulia defendants pleaded guilty for reduced sentences. Some managed to get probation, but others faced years in prison. The longest was 18 years in a state penitentiary. Even so, it was still better than the punishments they would have been handed otherwise. There was one man in Tulia, not related to any of the defendants, who couldn't believe what was happening. Gary Gardner, a farmer known for his sharp wit and his big mouth, was curious about the highly organized drug ring that had been found in his small town. But when he attended some of the trials looking for answers, all he got were more questions. None of the trials so far had answered Gardner's biggest concern. If there were 46 drug dealers in a town of 5,000 people, who were they selling to? The math didn't add up. Plus, Coleman was the only one who testified he bought drugs from any of the accused. The state couldn't find a single other person willing to confirm Coleman's claims. Gardner was convinced a mass injustice was happening right before their eyes. He had to do something about it. He helped form a group called Friends of Justice with the families of the accused. Together, they were going to figure out how to fight this outrage. One of the families involved was the Brookins. Their son, 22-year-old Freddie, was set to go to trial on February 17, 2000. Freddie's family actually had enough money to hire their own counsel rather than settle with an inexperienced or uninterested court-appointed attorney. Two days before his trial, Freddie drove with his father to Amarillo to meet with the man his family hired. Harin told Freddie that District Attorney Terry McEachern offered him a deal. If Freddie pleaded guilty, he would only get five years instead of the 20 he was facing at trial. Harin urged Freddie to take the offer. Everyone who pleaded out got the minimum sentences, and those who went to trial almost always got the maximum. One man Freddie went to high school with, Cash Love, was sentenced to 361 years. 
It wasn't worth taking such an extreme chance at trial when he could be home in a year or two with good behavior. On the ride home from the meeting with Hrin, Freddie talked it over with his father. He couldn't imagine going to prison for any amount of time, but a few years seemed a lot more survivable than 20. He wanted his father's advice. Fred Sr. worked hard to raise his kids on the straight and narrow. He never imagined being the father who had these conversations with his son, but there was only one way to approach this. He asked his son, are you guilty? When Freddie said he wasn't, the question was settled. Pleading guilty would be the same as lying, and the Brookins men told the truth. But what Fred Sr. didn't know was how little work his son's attorney had done in preparing for the case. Assuming Freddie would take the plea deal, he didn't file even the most routine pretrial motions. Hrin hadn't expected to even set foot in a courtroom. Freddie explained to Hrin that he had an alibi for the day Coleman claimed he sold him cocaine. He was in Amarillo with his cousin. Freddie begged Hrin to subpoena his cousin because Freddie knew he wouldn't show on his own accord. He was on probation and didn't want to cross Swisher County authorities. If he were subpoenaed, the cousin would have to testify, but Hrin never issued the summons. Hrin also hadn't called any of the other Tulia defense attorneys, so even though the word was spreading, he was ignorant of Tom Coleman's past scandals. When Freddie went to trial, he had no idea how little his defense had prepared. But Hrin, surprisingly enough, stumbled close to the truth while cross-examining Sergeant Jerry Massengill, Coleman's supervisor on the task force. Hrin asked about the background check done on Coleman before hiring, and Massengill mentioned that something troubling came up. Immediately, District Attorney Terry McEachern jumped up and objected. Judge Self then told a confused Hrin that he couldn't ask any more questions about this troubling thing in front of the jury. So Hrin asked for a bill of exceptions, and Self granted it. A bill of exceptions allows the questioning to occur, but without the jury in the room. It does not influence the verdict, but should the case be appealed, the information will be available for the higher court to consider. With the jury dismissed for the day, Hrin was free to ask Sergeant Massengill more about Coleman. Massengill immediately admitted that Coleman had been arrested during the undercover operation under suspicion of theft. Hrin was shocked. He couldn't believe this was the first he'd heard about the accusation. When Massengill couldn't remember specifics, Hrin then called Sheriff Stewart to the stand and tried to pry the information out of him, but Stewart kept his answers short not willing to volunteer anything more than what the defense already knew. But Hrin did manage to piece together some of the story. Stewart admitted he arrested Coleman and gave him leave to sort out his legal troubles. Coleman came back a week later, claiming it was all settled. 
But when Herin pushed further, Stewart was forced to admit he never saw the dismissal of charges himself. He never even called Cochrane County to ask about Coleman. He didn't call before he hired Coleman, and he didn't call after the arrest. At the end of the bill, Herin asked Judge Self to allow him to present this testimony to the jury. But once again, Self ruled against it. There was credible information that would bring Coleman's honesty into question, but the jurors never heard it. When the case was handed over to the jury, it took less than an hour for the verdict to come in. On February 18, 2000, they found Freddie guilty. Like the defendants before him, he was given the maximum sentence, 20 years. Freddie's conviction was a massive blow to the rest of the defendants. Even Paul Holloway, so ready to fight Coleman in court, accepted that his clients couldn't get a fair trial in Tulia. He reluctantly advised them to plead guilty and tried to negotiate the best deals for them. But one defendant wasn't going to make it so easy on the state, 24-year-old Kareem White. Strong-willed and a natural leader, he watched two of his siblings sentenced to the maximum sentences by Tulia juries. His mother, terrified to have another child sent to prison for decades, told him to take any deal the district attorney offered. But Kareem knew he was innocent. He was prepared to stare down Tom Coleman in a court of law. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with Kareem White's trial and the aftermath that involved the ACLU, the NAACP, and criminal justice reform activists from around the country. For more information on the 1999 drug arrests in Tulia, Texas, amongst the many sources we used, we found Nate Blakesley's book, Tulia, Race, Cocaine, and Corruption in a Small Texas Town, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Will Tom Coleman's credibility hold up in Kareem White's trial? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>